This is lost in translation. Glad you could be here. Several years ago, my wife Jenny was studying abroad in a city in southern France during her junior year of college. And as she was studying abroad in France, she got to enjoy a lot of what people do when they study abroad. She got to study at a university in French. She got to explore the uh, different restaurants of the city and the things to do there. She just had a blast and um, really enjoyed her time studying abroad. Uh, one of the evenings, she was out with a friend of hers who's also an American student, uh, an exchange student, studying abroad in southern France. And they were sitting at this quaint little French bistro, having a nice meal together. They just finished their meal. And then the waiter walks up to them and says in French, are you all finished with your food? And Jenny's friend turns to the waiter and says, oui, je suis plein, which means... I'm full, if you translate it exactly from French to English. But it's not what it means in French. You see, what happened is all of a sudden, people around the table got like turned in their chairs. They like stood up and got awkward. The waiter got this bright red face on and just stood back. And she realized, Jenny's friend, that what she had said was not what she had meant to say. You see, because what we think of as I am full, je suis plein, doesn't mean I am full of food, it means I am full of child. See, this 21-year-old college student had just awkwardly confessed to her waiter after a delicious, delightful meal in southern France that she was now full of child. See, that's kind of embarrassing, uh, but it happens, right? See, there are times it's possible for us to think we are communicating clearly when actually we are being heard to say something totally different. And it's kind of funny when you're a college student and you're trying to say I'm full and you actually say I'm pregnant. That's a little bit awkward. But it's much worse when you're trying to communicate the good news about Jesus Christ, something beautiful and precious, and you try to communicate it to somebody, but they don't seem to get it as good news. You guys know what I'm talking about? My guess is a number of you are in this room because you've had some kind of experience like that. Like you've tried to share your faith with somebody. You're like, this is the good news. And they're either confused or they, they don't even perceive it as good news. Or maybe others of you are in this room because although you want to share your faith with others, you're just worried about how to do that, that you might be confusing. See, the goal of this time we have together, this brief time that we have together is for us to, well, you can say it this way. The goal for our time is for us to learn to be bilingual. That's a pretty easy goal for 40 minutes. Well, we won't accomplish all of that. I won't teach you a whole new language in 40 minutes. Not even your uh, language professors in college could promise that. Uh, but what we are going to do is we're going to try to learn to speak a different language. You see, Christians, to communicate the truth, the good truths of our faith, we always have to be doing some level of translation, taking the truths of God's word and communicating it to the people who are around us. There is a work of translation that is required when Christians share their faith. This is not new to the 21st century. This is the way it has always been. And we need to be, I think, more careful and more equipped at that. And my hope in this time is to both make you aware that you need to translate and to get you started, maybe get you a little bit hungry, whet your appetite to learn to do the work of translating your faith. I hope that our 40 minutes together will encourage you and help you. Let me pray as we 
start our time together. Father, I thank you for the eagerness of, of so many in this room to want to share their faith. God, what an encouragement that is. Father, I pray that you would help each of us as we come here wanting to be able to communicate more clearly. We pray that you would bless us, give us minds that are able to hear this afternoon, even as we are tired and we've had a, a long day so far and we've heard a lot. Would you give us minds that are uh, eager and sensitive to hear what you want us to hear? And I pray you would equip us to more effectively share the good news in a way that is heard to be good with those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can follow along in your packet on page 36 and 37. Yeah, as you can see from the packet, we're going to kind of walk through and outline a pretty simple one. We're going to first talk about the need for translation. Then we're going to talk about some of the principles in translation. And finally, we'll get into the practice of translation today. And Lord willing, if I don't talk too much, which I cannot promise, then we will do some Q&A at the end. So if you have some questions, write them down as we go along. The first thing we want to talk about is the need for translation. We're going to look first at what Paul does in the city of Athens. Maybe you know Paul, maybe you don't. Paul was one of the great leaders of the early church. He was a, a, a Jewish man who grew up in a Jewish community, a strongly moral Jewish community. And he was in the city of Athens, which is a Greek city. Totally different culture. It's a culture that prized wisdom and knowledge. And so what we see here in Acts 17 is that Paul knows that he has to communicate across a culture. All right, we're just going to start with these verses. A couple of these verses. We'll come back to the rest of them later. But verse 16 and 17, follow along as I read them. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Let's note a couple of things about this passage. First, notice what's happening in Paul's life. What is he doing at the beginning? Verse 16, he was waiting, waiting. Paul is waiting. He is uh, in the midst of a missionary journey. He is not actually, wasn't planning to go to Athens. He's waiting for his buddies to catch up with him. So he's got a couple of days in this city and he's waiting. I want you to see that because this is not Paul's evangelistic campaign for Athens. This is not Paul saying, I got a, a plan. Let me write it out and journal it out. I got a bunch of people who are going to come and we're going to distribute leaflets and do a whole campaign in the city. It's not what's happening here. This is Paul doing his ordinary life. He's got a couple of days, he just chooses with his couple of days that he could have spent in vacation or resting or chilling out. He chooses to spend these couple of days sharing his faith. It's as he's living his life. Well, notice what he's doing as he lives his life. Verse 16, he saw. Catch that. He saw. Maybe circle that if you have a pen. He saw what? That the city was full of idols. You see, Paul wasn't just in the city and kind of walking around and just uh, doing whatever he wanted to do. He wasn't distracted or disengaged or disinterested, but instead, Paul had eyes to see the people around him. He had his eyes open and he looked around and he saw. And notice this, what he saw, it bothered him. Do you see that in the text? The word there is that he was provoked. 
He was provoked when he saw that the city was full of idols. The word provoked means to be stirred up or to be churned up. See, as Paul walked through the city of Athens and as he went to different places and saw different things, he saw that there were people living for false gods there, going and worshiping at false temples like the temple of Athena and many others. And as he was doing that, he was bothered by it. It bothered him. You see, the false worship of the people around him, it bothered him. It broke his heart. I wonder, what does the false worship of the people around you do to you? How do you feel when you see people in your communities, on your campus, in your neighborhood, in your dorm room, in your building, living for false things? Do you know that there are people giving their life on your campus to things like sexual fulfillment and things like academic success and things like making a lot of money or making a significant name for myself on social media or accomplishing something great on the football field, right? They're giving their whole lives for those things. And if you're a Christian, you know those things will never satisfy souls. Those people are living lives that will ultimately disappoint them and lead to eternal judgment. Does that bother you? It's called, we're we're called to be bothered by these things, to be stirred up, to be churned up inwardly as we look around and see the false worship of people around us. But notice that he's not just internally churned up and bothered, but he actually does something. Did you catch that? Look what he does. Verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. See, did you catch what he does? He's not just bothered. I don't know about you, but maybe you're bothered by the things that are going on in your campus or in your family or in your community. But, and that's natural for you. And you care about that, but some of us, if you're like me, you're bothered by those things, but you don't often do anything about it. Well, notice that Paul is bothered by it, and he speaks up. He opens his mouth. He goes to tell people about Jesus. Let's think about this for a minute. He's provoked, and his internal provocation doesn't lead him to contemplation. It doesn't lead him to writing an essay or to go thinking, hmm, what would be a good evangelistic strategy? Let me write it all out and think about the perfect way to say it. No, he doesn't do contemplation. He also doesn't do meditation, right? Just, I mean, it would be good to pray. I'm sure he prayed, but he doesn't just do this extended meditation. No, he doesn't do that. But you know what he also doesn't do? He doesn't do frustration, which a lot of people are doing today. Man, look at all those idols out there in the culture. Darn it. That stinks, right? He's not just frustrated. He's not contemplating. He's not meditating. But his provocation leads to proclamation. His being stirred up leads him to speak up. His internal uh, just concern for other people leads him to go out and to open his mouth and to share with other people about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we just see very clearly from this text that the false worship of our communities ought to bother us so much that we can't help but speak. Man, everyone on our campus are beggars who are starving, and you and I know how to find the bread. we got to show them where it is. 
We need to translate. We need to share the good news uh, of the gospel because the false worship of our communities, it bothers us. Another thing we see is that the need for translation is this, that everyone has a culture. We see this in this text, but we also see it everywhere, right? Look at that quote I put for you on the top of your outline from a missionary, Leslie Newbegin. This is a missionary. He was a missionary to India for a long time. He came back to the United States and he wrote this. By the word culture, we have to understand that it's the sum total of ways of living developed by a group of human beings and handed on from generation to generation. Central to culture is language. Catch that. There's a connection between culture and language. We'll come back to that. The language of a people provides the means by which they express their way of perceiving things and of coping with them. So notice what Leslie Newbegin is saying here fairly simply. He's saying that there is this universal thing that everyone has called culture. And it comes in different shapes and sizes. It comes from when we grew up, the, the time we grew up. And it comes from where we grew up. It comes from the type of families we grew up in. We all have different and unique cultures. I'm sure we could talk about the diversity of cultures we have in this room. Everyone has a culture. And our culture shapes the way you view the world. Do you know that? You can think of it this way. Everyone has a window through which they see the world, but they often don't perceive that they have a window. I wonder, do you know that not everyone sees the world the way you do? Right? People perceive of the world from different windows. Everyone has a culture. That's the second need for translation. I want to show you the third one. It's this. Christianese is incomprehensible in a post-Christian world. Note with me that little chart I put for you on your handout. You see this one here? It's not scientific, just so you know. Please don't like cite this in some academic paper that you're doing. Disciple makers or somebody made it up. But it, it, it's a chart that is helpful for this reason because it describes a phenomenon, which is this. The longer you've been a Christian in general, the less non-Christians you know. The, the longer you've been a Christian, the less non-Christians you know, the more likely you are to have just lived a lot of your life in a Christian bubble. That's pretty common, right? Maybe some of you could testify that, people who grew up in Christian homes. There's nothing wrong with that, just to be clear, nothing sinful about that, but that kind of happens, right? That increasingly, if, you've, if you grew up in a Christian culture, it feels pretty hard for you, perhaps, to be on a secular campus, right? Because the culture is so different. There is a clash of cultures, and I would say this, not only if you've been a Christian for a long time is this challenging, but if you are on one of the bigger fellowships in Disciple Makers, this is increasingly challenging for you. Here's why. The bigger fellowships, I won't name names, but you know who you are. The bigger fellowships in Disciple Makers have this challenge, that the bigger you are, the easier it is for all your friends to be in the fellowship, right? The easier it is for you to go four years and to basically have no real non-Christian friends or com community at all. Right? It's pretty easy for you to do that. Some of the guys on smaller Christian campuses are like, what are you talking about? That's, uh, I have like three Christian friends and they're in this room, right? So it's a little easier for you guys. But it's a challenge. And here's what happens. If the longer you've been in the Christian bubble, you learn to speak the Christian language. And that is called Christianese. I, I don't know if I, I don't think I made that up. Someone else coined that term. Christianese. What is Christianese? Christianese is this. It is the peculiar language and phrases of the Christian subculture that are not understood outside of it. Christianese is the peculiar language and phrases of the Christian subculture that are not understood outside of it. Maybe I could illustrate this because I'm 
pretty familiar with Christianese. Uh, several years ago, I was talking to a student after one of our fellowship meetings on campus. And we were sitting down having a conversation. I was asking him about it. And he was like, Lincoln, I've really enjoyed coming to Bible study and stuff, but I just feel really confused. He's like, you guys keep talking about this thing called conviction. I'm just wondering, like, is somebody going to prison? Like, what did you guys do? You see, we in our Christian bubble, whatever the fellowship was, had you thrown around this word conviction. And in Christian culture, that means a certain thing, right? What does that mean? Come on, this is a Christian subculture right here. What does con- conviction mean? So you, what? Called. Called. Okay, well, what else? Yeah, that's a good one. Feel bad for your sin. You walk out of this room, you're like, man, that was so convicting. I know what you're saying. The non-Christian who's in the hallway, perhaps, is like, what the heck is he talking about, right? This happens. We Christians speak our own language that is at times foreign to outside people. Just to be clear here, it is not sinful that we do that. It isn't wrong that we do that. Every culture does that. Every culture develops a language. That's what that Leslie Newbegin quote shows us. There's nothing wrong with that. Here's the thing, though. We got to be aware of it. Because when we are not aware of it, we are miscommunicating. That's, the, that's like the opening illustration, right? We think we're saying we're full, but actually we're saying we're pregnant. At, at the very best, we're confusing people. I mean, think about things we say like this. Uh, man, I just had such a sweet devotional. Man, I'm really working hard to just guard her heart. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really struggling with that, right? We throw these words around. These, we know what we're talking about, and it's fine that we talk about them in our fellowships. I don't, I'm not trying to criticize that, but I just want you to be aware that when you sit at the lunch table with your non-Christian friends or when you go home to your non-Christian family, they're going to think of you as weird when you say these kind of things, not because they're trying to be rude or mean or whatever, but because you have developed Christianese. And so you got to learn kind of... Her, to reverse the language and learn to speak to them. We all have this Christianese challenge. So I guess this challenge, maybe for us, the, the principle, the practical for us is this. Do you recognize when you're speaking Christianese? Work, learn to become more aware when you are speaking Christianese. If you don't know, grab a friend in this room or not who has not been a Christian that long and they will point it out to you. All right, we need translation because Christianese is incomprehensible increasingly today. The last need for translation is this, that increasingly Christians are seen in a negative light. You guys know this. I really don't have to tell you this, but but it is true that on campuses today, Christians are not seen as one of the many options people have for religious choices that are equally valid. That's not actually how it's seen. Christians are seen particularly in a negative light by some on campus. Several years ago, On a campus, a group of students wanted to put voluntary prayer boxes on campus. These were boxes on campus that had, I don't know, like a cross or something. And people could put in these boxes anonymous prayer requests. Right? And this was announced across campus. And there was an email that went out to the students and faculty and all these kinds of people. And can you imagine that this email about optional, voluntary, anonymous prayer boxes caused a firestorm. There were administrators and faculty that were furious. Now, not everybody, but there were a significant number of people who were upset. One person wrote this in an email to the entire faculty. While it's hard to make the pushers stop, 
we ought to speak up for those who've been pushed. I want you to hear what's being said there. He's saying Christians are pushing their prayerfulness on the campus. And that's just a, a, a terrible thing for victimized people, and we got to stop it. Now, I don't want to mock this quote. I just want to understand it. Think about what this person is saying. We have to make the pushers stop. We ought to speak up for those who have been pushed. He's saying that we have to protect the most marginalized and victimized on campus. And Christians are often people who are pushy. That's what he's saying. And my guess is, I bet if we went around the room, there are other Christians who have stories like this, don't you? Right? Stories of, of friends or other people on campus who have just sensed or said things like Christians are pushy and they're seen in a negative light. That's a challenge. Judgmental, right? There's all kinds of things Christians are seen as. Maybe you feel like as we reflect on this need for translation, it just feels difficult, right? Everyone has a culture and Christianese is difficult and we need to be aware of ourselves and then it's possible we'll be seen in a negative light. It feels like the gap keeps growing and growing. The language we need to learn is increasingly difficult. And I want to just have you sit with that for a moment and just let you know that is real. There are challenges today. Now, these are challenges Christians have always had, but these are challenges. There is a language gap. But brothers and sisters, as this text will show us in the second point particularly, there are principles for ways we can learn to speak more effectively in our culture today. And we're going to draw those primarily from what Paul says in Acts chapter 17. Look with me there on your handout, Acts 17. I'm going to read starting in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except the telling or hearing of something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. 
the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Notice with me what Paul did. We're kind of walk through several principles we get from the way Paul does ministry across cultures. Look at this first. He developed strong relationships. Look at verse 17. It says that he reasoned when? Every day. Notice where he reasoned. In the same places. He went back again and again to the same two places. The synagogue and the marketplace. The synagogue would have been where the religious people were, the Jews were. And the marketplace would have been where the the Greek-speaking people would have been. Right, the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. So he's going, he's actually doing, seems like he's doing cross-cultural ministry all the time. He's going to one culture that's totally different, and then he's going to the next one, maybe in the next afternoon. He's translating the gospel in different ways. And it's interesting as you reflect on what Paul's doing here, particularly because he's just has this uh, great concern, not only for people like him, but for those who are not like him. He has such a great concern for them that they ask him if he would get up before them and speak at this center of the community, the Areopagus. It's amazing that he's developed so deep a relationship. You see, this is just a common principle. We say this today, right? People don't know, want to know how much you know until they know how much you care. Right? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. See, one of our greatest and perhaps most neglected apologetic tools is the strength of our relationships. We need to develop strong relationships. As I said a moment ago, it is discouraging that Christians can be seen in an increasingly negative light today, right? That's discouraging. That's no fun to feel mocked or undermined for being a Christian. Totally, that's true. But there is actually an opportunity in that. Do you realize that? Think about it with me for a second. If people think of Christians as hypocrites and self-righteous and primarily striving for one political agenda, think about this for a second. If they think of Christians like that, well, it's not hard to undermine what they think, right? Just by developing relationships with them, you can actually begin to start to change their worldview, right? As you develop a relationship with them, they'll, maybe they'll see that, yeah, I mean, they're kind of messy and they got weird stuff going on in their life. I don't agree with this Christian person, but they're not a hypocrite. They're unique in how they actually admit that they've done something wrong and they've actually apologized to me before. That's weird. And maybe they'll see that Christians aren't self-righteous, but they're actually kind. This is weird. Maybe they'll see that Christians are actually far more kind than their secular friends. That'll, that'll throw them for a loop. And maybe they'll even perceive that you have an agenda, that you actually want them. You go to conferences like this and sessions like this one, and you want them to know Jesus, and they'll be like, oh, that agenda's weird. But they may realize that it's not a political agenda primarily, but you have an agenda of love to help them know God. So we can actually use, in some ways, their worldview, I don't want to say against them, but we can press against it by actually loving them and living as Christians. It's going to shock them. It's going to blow their minds. They're not going to know what to do about it. 
So we can develop strong relationships. I could talk more about this if you want in the Q&A. You can ask more questions. But let me give you a few principles for how to do this. I'd encourage you to develop strong relationships with the non-Christians in your life. Perhaps introduce yourself to people sitting next to you in class or people you are kind of acquaintances with. Maybe invite them to go to lunch with you. Or maybe even go to a different club on campus. I don't know how you do it, and I don't really care. But figure out ways to develop strong friendships with people who are not Christians. Maybe even practically this weekend. I know we're at fall conference. There are many Christians at fall conference. So it's a little bit different. But man, if you can't introduce yourself to some Christians in this room at this conference, you won't be able to do it on campus, right? So you can start practicing right after this session by talking to someone you don't know or at the dinner table, or in line for dinner. Even pro you can even start to practice this by developing strong relationships right here this weekend. So we have to develop strong relationships. But we also have to do this. we got to celebrate the good. I want you with me for a moment to try to enter Paul's mind. We're, we're going to try to enter his worldview. Think with me about Paul for a second. He grew up in a legalistic, rigorous, moral Jewish home, right? Where they thought of Greek people as foreign and unclean. They didn't want anything to do with them. And now he's in Athens. And this city thinks they're so wise. And yet, someone from Paul's perspective is like, you think you're so wise, and yet you have all these crazy gods. Maybe Paul would also be thinking this. You think you're so moral, but there's so much immoral about you. Remember, Paul, coming from this Jewish culture, was, had, a, had a strong sexual moral ethic. That was, not the same social, that was not the same sexual ethic as the Greek world. In the ancient Greek world, the sexual ethic was this. If you were a man with power, you could do whatever you wanted with whoever you wanted, and no one could say anything. Do you know that? That was the sexual ethic of the day. If you were a man with power, you could sleep with whoever you want. It didn't matter their gender. It didn't matter if they were married or not. It didn't matter their position. But if you had power, you could do what you wanted. That was the sexual ethic of the day common in ancient Athens. How do you think Paul perceived that sexual ethic? Ugh. Yuck repulsive. If you're anything like me, you think Paul would be repulsed by this culture. There's so much wrong with Athenian culture, he could have written a book. But he doesn't do that. Notice what he does do. Verse 22 and 23, it says this, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar to this inscription, to the unknown God. Catch what he's doing there. In just a few verses, Paul is picking out and celebrating something that's good about Athens. There's a lot wrong, and if you're anything like me, you'd probably want to hammer them for what they, what's wrong, but he doesn't do that. Instead, as he's making his appeal about Jesus, he highlights the good. He highlights that they are very religious, that they are concerned about knowing God. That's something he can celebrate. He highlights that. But he also highlights something else. He highlights that they have an altar to an unknown God. So he highlights that in their worldview, in their religion, they, they have a sense where they don't fully yet understand God. So he highlights that and actually uses that as an opportunity to say, what you perceive as unknown, that's, that's good because you actually don't know God. Let me show you the true God. See, Paul, even before he challenges them, he celebrates the good. I'm convinced that at times, Christians like me, maybe like you, can be so eager and so uh, just desirous of challenging and speaking up that at times, we're so quick to speak that we fail to celebrate. 
We're so quick to correct that we fail to recognize the good. See, we need to have eyes like Paul's, trained to see the good and the valuable and even the moral amongst our non-Christian friends and family. How might you do this? Well, let's get practical for a moment. We could note in a non-Christian friend or family member just a, a genuine spiritual longing. He might say something like this. I sense that in you there is a genuine spiritual longing. Now, we don't see eye to eye about what spirituality is, but I really appreciate that you want to know something about God. You could celebrate that genuine spiritual longing like Paul did. Or you could even celebrate something moral in them. Now, I'm not saying lie to them. I'm not saying that. This has to be true. But we can celebrate when they non-Christian people do moral things. Like, I, I really recognize that you have a deep concern for the hurting on this campus. You want to help those who you feel like are marginalized and broken. And, and you're doing things to, to love them and serve them. That's awesome. I appreciate that. We need to have eyes to celebrate the good. We need to develop strong relationships. We need to celebrate the good. The next thing we see that Paul does here is we need to learn to appeal to their sources of authority. Notice when Paul speaks what he appeals to. Look with me at verse uh, 23 and 25 again. I found also an altar to, with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breadth and everything. Notice what Paul's doing there. He's making a very simple argument. Maybe you could see what he's saying there. He's saying, hey, hold on a minute. You Athenians, you guys believe God made the world, right? Your poets actually said God made everything. So you believe God made the world. Here's the weird thing, though. You go to a temple that was made by a man. And at that temple, you have an idol that was made by a man. And that idol is served by men. Wait, how do you believe those two things? That's kind of weird. That doesn't make a lot of sense. To believe in a God who made everything and yet you had to make God? That's, that's illogical. You know what he's doing here? He's appealing to their reasoning. He's pointing out they believe in two things that don't make sense together. One of the ways we can be more effective in sharing our faith with others is to appeal to their reasoning. Your non-Christian friends, I am sure, have Reasoning that is inconsistent. They believe in two things that don't make sense together. And what you can do lovingly is ask questions that point that out, just like Paul does here. Paul does this. He makes his argument by appealing to their reasoning, but that's actually not the only thing he appeals to in this passage. Look at verse 28. It says this. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Catch those two things in quotes there. Both those things were not, are not from the Old Testament. They're from pagan Athenian poets. Paul, making his appeal about Jesus, cites pagan Athenian poets. Well, why does he do that? Because he's recognizing and listening to their culture. And he's saying, you guys have a real value in these philosophers and these poets and their writings. And I want to appeal to you and actually show you that some of the things you love most about these poets actually point you to the real true God. 
See, we need to learn to appeal to the authorities of the people around us, their sources of authority. And as we do this more and more, we'll be more effective as we share the good news. Let me get more practical here. How do we do this today? Well, I'm sure there are more cultural authorities than this. I don't have a master's degree in this. I don't know if some other disciple maker staff perhaps could identify all these. That's another breakout. But here's a few thoughts on some cultural authorities I've identified. We just talked about reasoning. That's still an authority today. You can uh, point out the inconsistencies in the reasoning of your non-Christian friends. And that will really be a help and a challenge to them. It'll help them think more deeply. Think about this. We Christians believe that the Bible is true, that it's the source of truth. That means this, that every other belief system is inconsistent with itself. And if you ask enough questions and probe it like a sandcastle, it's going to fall apart. So we can appeal to their authorities by asking questions and pointing out inconsistent reasoning. That's one cultural authority today. Another authority today that that is growing is academic or scientific, right? That's a real authority today. People say if science says it, that's what it is. Now, I'm not going to go into that whole can of worms I just kind of slightly opened, but we can actually utilize that. In fact, I don't know, if you were talking to someone who's anxious, you could point out this, that do you know this, that actually statistically, scientifically, I didn't get this from the Bible, this is from science, data, Religious people are less depressed and anxious than non-religious people. Now, that's one way to make an appeal. You could also make an appeal from the Bible, and that's good too. We should do both. But science has a certain appeal today. So as we're aware of those kind of things, it actually makes our appeal even stronger. We can appeal to science. We can appeal to reasoning. We can also appeal to experience, our personal experience. We could share our testimony, and that's powerful. But we can also appeal to the experiences of other people. We need to listen to people and know their stories before we do that. But once we know people's stories, we can appeal to them, right? Say, man, I know you've been living like academic success will satisfy your soul. How is that going for you? Just ask that question. And you might be able to help them realize that actually in their experience, it's not going that well. The last one I would point out would be popular culture. That would be uh, movies, television, music, or even probably not poetry today. I don't know a lot of college students who are reading poetry for their free time. Maybe you are. That's great. But uh, pop, things in popular culture, I don't know. You could appeal to the Barbie movie or Instagram or whatever. You guys know this way better than I do. But we can appeal to popular culture as well. All right. Those are three principles. Let me give you the last one. It's this and perhaps the most important one. The way forward is this, by taking small steps and graciously asking questions. Look back with me at what Paul does in verse 30 and 31. He says this, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Notice what Paul says here. This is kind of his closing appeal to them. He says, God has made everything. God has sent Jesus. Jesus was resurrected from the dead and he is going to return. So the times of ignorance are over and now it's time for you to repent and turn to Jesus. That's his appeal. But I want you to think for a second. Notice how much he leaves out. You know what he doesn't talk about? 
the cross. If it were me, I probably would have mentioned that. That seems important, Paul. He doesn't talk about the cross. He doesn't talk about justification by faith. He doesn't talk about the authority of the Bible over other authorities. Why doesn't he talk about any of that stuff? It's not because those aren't important or those aren't true. He'll talk about those in other places in the New Testament. It's because he wants to focus like an arrow on helping them take a few steps forward. He's not trying to do everything in this conversation or through this sermon, but he's trying to help them take a few more steps towards God. What does this mean for us? This means we need to be content to take small steps, to have small conversations that help people move a little bit further towards God. We don't need to give them the whole enchilada all at once. Perhaps you're like me and you're thinking about times you have done that and just seeing non-Christians' eyes glaze over as you've like given short, not the very short, 30-minute sermons to your non-Christian friends after you come back from the fall conference. Please don't do that. Right? We don't want to give them what they cannot ingest, what they cannot enjoy, what they cannot understand. We want to help them to make a few steps of progress. One missionary friend of mine uses this illustration. He imagines that non-Christians are kind of like a glass jar that you could fill up with sugar cubes. And when the glass jar gets to 100 sugar cubes, then that person becomes a Christian, basically. It's just an illustration, but think about it for a second. All right. And what we're trying to do, this missionary says, is just put another sugar cube in the jar. You don't know if you're the first sugar cube or you're the hundredth sugar cube, and your conversation is going to be the one that makes them accept Jesus. You have no idea. But your job is just to put one sugar cube in. So here's what this means. You can lower the pressure, okay? You don't need to get them to convert in one conversation. Just help them take one step. Just help them think more deeply about one thing. Just ask them one tough question that will put a a pebble in their shoe so they walk away from the conversation with you and they just got to think about that for a while. So we will really help people as we don't try to do it all in a single conversation, but by asking questions, we help them to take a single step. All right, we've talked about some of the principle for translation here. We need to develop strong relationships, celebrate the good, appeal to their sources of authority, and take small steps by graciously asking questions. I want to wrap this up with our last section, our our briefest section, by talking about the the practice of translating today. What does it actually look like to translate our faith today? I've been particularly helped by this book, which I think is still at the book table, uh, Telling a Better Story by Joshua Chatraw. It's a really helpful book um, because particularly what Joshua Chatraw is trying to do in this book is he's saying we need to get into people's worldview, step into it, and as we step into their worldview and as we get into their shoes and see the world from their perspective, that will help us to show them the way out to understand the hope of Jesus. Listen to this quote from Joshua Chatraw. It's on the left side of your packet. He says this, Inside out, begins by entering a person's social imagination and and engaging their ideas from within. We need to learn to step into their story before pointing them to the way out. See, to more effectively share the gospel, we need to take off our lenses just for a moment and put on the lenses of our non-Christian friends and neighbors so that we can speak the good news in a way that is understood. Um. You could, well, let's go to practicals here. What then is the stories that are being told today? This isn't maybe the specific story that your friend is telling you. I just want to kind of think for a moment about the general stories that are going on on campus today, the people around you. What kind of stories are they telling? 
Well, here are the six major ones that Joshua Chatra identifies. There perhaps are more, but here's the six ones that he identifies. I think this is helpful. For the first one he identifies is the pessimistic story. This is a story that people believe most of, at least. It's this, that life has no ultimate significance, no order, no ethics. Humanity will go extinct and be forgotten. Now, I want to share with you, in general terms, this is the most common story for college students today. Do you know that? That your generation is among the most pessimistic in history. I'm not saying that to offend you. I'm saying it because science. Literally, a sociologist, Gene Twenge, has pointed out that 18 to 22-year-olds, or the Gen, uh, Gen Z, excuse me, uh, Gen Z has lower hopes for the f future according to them, not according to science, but according to them, than any other generation before it. You guys have lower hopes for getting a job than previous generations. You guys have more negative views of America, and your rates of depression are at record highs. I'm sorry, that's very bad news. <laughs> it's, but... I think it's helpful to know. It's helpful to know for this reason, because if that's what most people believe in general, they have kind of a negative view of the world, that gives us a, a more clear way, a more thoughtful way to share the good news. You know, we might talk, say it this way. I might share the gospel to someone who believes in this story this way. There is darkness in the world. The Bible describes it. There is evil and wickedness. There is division and discrimination and darkness everywhere. But did you know this, that in the midst of the darkness... God gives us a reason for hope. He sent his son into the darkness so that we could have light. Man, wouldn't it be nice to have hope in a world that feels so dark? That's one way you might share the gospel with a pessimistic story. Well, let's take a couple more of these. The optimistic secular story sees the world as a place of liberation from old restraints and dogmas. This is way more hopeful. They think that we can work to maximize human happiness and minimize suffering. This is kind of the idea that society bends towards justice. Everything is moving towards the good. And, and you might share the gospel to that person in this way. You might say that there is a hope for the world, but haven't you noticed that hoping in humans is pretty disappointing? But there is someone who came to bring good news to the poor, to liberty to the captives, and the year of, the, of God's blessing. And that person is Jesus. There's a, another story here is the pluralistic and moral therapeutic spiritual story. This is kind of a, a spiritual person who believes that God gives us life and meaning, but the way we find that life and meaning is not by looking at any book particularly, but by looking inwardly at ourselves. Yeah, we can read a religious text here and there, but religious texts aren't our source of authority. The source of authority is my own inner voice. How could you share the gospel of that person? Well, you might share it this way. Have you ever thought about this, that the journey to find meaning on the inside is just a, is endless? Right? You keep searching and searching and searching, but it will never satisfy. But there is a place where God has written a story that is true, that actually will satisfy. That's the pluralistic and moral therapeutic story. Let me hit a couple more. The, the story of consumerism is this, that the, goods, that the good in life comes through purchasing things. We see this in advertisements everywhere. And you might just point out to this person, man, do you realize that your soul is more valuable than stuff? Have you ever thought about how valuable your soul is in relation to stuff? How about the story of achievement? That's the idea that you can accomplish something amazing. And then as you accomplish something amazing, your life will be meaningful. Well, you might point out to that person that you never accomplish all that you hope to. You go to sleep every night recognizing the struggles and failures in yourself. But do you realize 
that Jesus has come to accomplish what you could not. Jesus' death and resurrection has brought you from being a failure to being a victor. Finally, the story of romance. That's the story that our desire to be loved and to love will only be realized, will only be realized by finding our perfect soulmate. Uh, how would you share the gospel to that person? Well, you could say this, Jesus is the love you've been waiting for all your life. See, you can look for love in people and it'll satisfy a little, for a little while, but there is a love, lover who's loved you in spite of all your foibles, all your failures, all your shortcomings. He knows everything about you and he loves you. Okay, I did a lot there in the last few minutes just to kind of give you a framework. I'd love to spend just the last couple minutes answering some questions. If you have some thoughts on which one of these stories you think is most dominant amongst your friends, I'd love to hear that. We have some mic runners over there. Gary Christman in the sweater. Just raise your hand so we can have these for the recording. Hello. Um, my name's Grace, and my question is, do you think it's, like, best to learn a little bit more about, like, someone's religion before, like, starting to preach the gospel to them? Do I think it's better? Yes. Um, that's my short answer. And the reason for that, I, I don't think, it depends on the context, but in general, yes, because we want to develop strong relationships and, and really know them. I think we can feel like we have to be bold and, you know, within a short time, we've just met someone like, hey, do you know the gospel? And like, yes, share the gospel. But we can actually take the time to develop relationships first. So I think it really does help. Now, other people in this room are like, great, we can take time so I can take as long as I want. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm actually kind of more naturally like that. So we should take time to develop strong relationships to understand what they believe. Uh, but we also do need to speak up. Yeah. Great question. Thanks. Um, Share your name, too. I like hearing people's names. Okay. I have a question. My name's Lindy. Um, and what I've found so far on campus is that the friends I'm getting closest with, they say that they don't want any part of religion. You could yeah. just do you. So, like, yeah. what's your, like, suggestions to, like, reach those people who don't really want to have to do with religion and they're just like, oh, that can be your thing, not my thing. Right. That can be your thing, not my thing. So here's what one particular challenge of that. Uh, uh, and that's a particular challenge today. By the way, this is a challenge anytime if any of you share testimonies on your campus, this is the challenge. People walk into the room and they come for your testimony because they're your friend and they're like, wow, that's an amazing testimony Lindy just shared. Awesome. That's so good for her. And they leave the room. Right. Because they think that's for you, right? Like you just said, you have your own truth and I have my own truth and never the twain shall meet, right? We can all have separate truths. Here's the, what I would say, maybe one way to say it is this, that people believe that a little bit, but if you press them, they don't really believe that very much. Because that's true, maybe they think that's true with your religion and my religion, but they don't think that's true with like abusing children, do they? I don't mean that to be rude, I just mean... There are things that we all believe are true. We all, whether, whatever your stage of religion is, you're a moral person at some level. And there are things we see that we just know are wrong, right? So I would, if you have the time for a conversation, I would say something like, but aren't there things, yeah, it's true that I might have my religion and you might have your religion, but have you ever considered that there are things that are just wrong? What are some things you've seen that you think are just wrong, right? Well, what if that person said, my truth is just hurting people, and I just feel better when I hurt people. Is it okay for me to have that truth? I don't think they would think that. I don't think most people would think that, right? Hopefully that's helpful. Other questions? Yeah. Hi, my name is Anderson. I wanted to ask you, like, what's your best advice for maybe when you're, like, 
having a spiritual conversation with someone and you hit like a roadblock or there's a question that you just don't know the answer to. Yeah. Or maybe there's just something that kind of like stumps you. What's like your best great advice to like moving past that? I've got a good one for this one. I've got a good one. I nailed this one. Here's my best. <laughs> I'm really good at this one. Here's my response. I don't know. That's like what I'll say. I'll say I'll come back to one. I don't know. It's a great question. Let me come back to you. Because your job is not to be the expert to have all the answers. Uh, your job is just to try to help them along the path, but to continue the conversation say, that's such a good question. It's such a good question. It's making me think about my faith. Can I research that and we can talk later about it? So that builds a bridge. Instead of, I think some of us want to be apologetics answer men and have all the answers and read all the books that we have downstairs. And sometimes people read all those books and they, they become the answer men and they don't actually do very good uh, evangelism because they talk too much and they don't listen enough. So, yeah, I think a great answer is I don't know. Um, do you have any advice for sharing the gospel with people who have been, like, previously hurt by the church or, like, maybe, like, fell away from religion? That's a great question. Hurt by the church or fell away from religion? Religion meaning Christianity? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's kind of two different things because there are, well, I guess you're, you're assuming they fell away and they, it was kind of a negative fall away because there are some people, different cultures actually do this differently uh, and I won't get into all that, but um, if they have a negative experience with the church, I think I would just really want to hear them out and their negative experiences. We can feel afraid of, of that as Christians, people who have church hurt and say, I really want to hear your experiences. Tell me about how the church hurt you and just listen to how they've been hurt. You don't need to correct how they've been hurt and say how you would treat, but, but, but I bet something in their story is probably true. I, I, I'm just going to go with 98% of people. Like the way you were treated by that pastor wasn't right, right? The way you were marginalized by that community wasn't fair. That's not how Christians ought to treat people. I'm really sorry about that. That would be my response. And then I think you might have a platform later to build a relationship. And, but yeah, so I think that's actually, like we said earlier, that's actually an opportunity in relationships. Great question. Hi, I'm Lydia. My question Hi, Lydia. is... Nice to meet you. Oh, nice to meet you. Um, how do you, um, like, share the gospel with someone who you know knows the gospel and they're choosing not to believe it? Like, how can you help them through that? How do you share the gospel with someone who knows the gospel but chooses not to believe the gospel? Do you have any reason? you want to give me any... Oh, she doesn't have the microphone anymore. You just sh shout it out. What's the reason? Any reasoning particularly? They just don't trust that it's true anymore. They don't trust that it's true anymore. Okay, so it's not, is it kind of, hmm. hmm. How do you share the gospel? They know the truth, but they don't believe it. Yeah, so that has to do with experience for them. They've read in the Bible, this is true, but in my experience, this doesn't feel true, right? Because by the way, I made your authority today for people, feelings. Mm. Uh, part of that is a big problem because, you know, well, I won't go into that. Sorry, I'm getting on a sidetrack here. How do you... Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't have a great answer for that. <laughs> I'm going to pull an Anderson today. I don't know. Uh, and you're like, wow, he's really wise. No. Um, I guess if, if my, my short answer would be to find opportunities just to share honestly for yourself how you have found it to be true and meaningful in your own life um, through hardships and difficulties. So that's not a great answer. So maybe that gives you hope because you don't always have great answers. Look, I don't have great answers. Gary. I might recommend for that particular situation, 
pray. Because your ability to convince and the burden of that on your back, it's not fair to you and it's not fair to them. Yeah. The burden needs to be on the Holy Spirit and just praying that he would work in that person's life. Now that, I think as Lincoln is saying, you can continue to be in their life. That's a good answer. And be that example to them of a true Christian testimony who lives out their faith. Let's take one more question. Do you have any advice for people who perceive religion as a later problem in life and are focusing on college being fun? Focusing on college being fun. Yeah, it's a great opportunity to talk about what's truly fun. Uh, yeah, they, they, because here's, here's, there's some, well, what you can do is reflect some assumptions there. Say, sounds like you're saying, please define fun for me, right? That's what I would ask. What's fun for me? And why should religion be a good thing later, right? If it's a good thing later, shouldn't it be a good thing now? How is it possible for something to be good later, but not now? So that's a logical in inconsistency you could reflect. Um, and then I would, yeah, maybe a scripture you could think about. I don't know that I would talk, say this, but there's a lot of scriptures that speak to uh, the joy that we have in Christ is far better than the joy that they have in, in their parties and their wine. I think it's a, in Psalms somewhere. Um, you have to look it up. You have to Google it. Um, but it shows that actually Christian life, do you know this, is actually meant to be fun. Not easy, but actually to be joyful. You might look for joy out there, but I don't think you're going to find it. Great questions. Thank you, guys. Let me just close with one little thing. Uh, verse 34. This little verse, we got, can't miss this. Some men joined him and believed. You know, Paul, believe it or not, although he was godly, he wasn't perfect. And this sermon didn't get 100 people to believe, but a few people believed and they changed their lives. And they came to have a hope they didn't have before. They turned from idolatry and hopelessness to hope in Christ. And brothers and sisters, the same thing can be true of us. We're not going to do it perfectly. We're not, we're not masters. You're just learning. You're just starting this new language class. We're beginners. But as we begin, we can learn to speak this language. And as we learn to speak this language more effectively, God can and will use us to change lives. Let me pray. Father, I do thank you for each one in this room. Help us, God, to be more conscious of our need to speak a different language. Help us to be more aware of the times we're speaking in ways that are confusing. And help us to be more savvy in our conversations to speak both the truth but also in love. To develop strong relationships but not be afraid to have strong conversations. God, help us to be able to have the skill and wisdom to ask good questions. Lord, even when we feel like we, we don't know what to say. Help us to admit our own weakness and to trust in you in these things. To never trust in ourselves, even as Gary was pointing out earlier. Lord, we can't rely on ourselves to do this. We'll never do it on our own. But Lord, you use our feeble efforts to change lives. I pray you would use the men and women in this room to change lives on their campus this semester. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.